At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast. I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. I hope you had a great weekend. What would you say if I told you a young man didn't eat anything for over a year and lived to tell the tale? Well, that's exactly what happened with Angus Barbieri in 1965 after he checked into the hospital at the Royal Infirmary of Dundee in Scotland. Today, on episode 260, we're going to talk about some weird science. science. Of the longest fast ever. We'll also discuss what the science says about intermittent fasting regarding training, weight management, and health. Okay, so let's talk about the longest fast on record. As I mentioned in the intro, this went down in June of 1965 inside of a hospital in Scotland. The patient, Angus Barbieri, turned up to the hospital and apparently admitted himself to the hospital to get his weight in check. Now, it's unclear why he chose this hospital, but there is a paper from the same doctors published on another man with obesity that they treated with the long fast three years prior to Angus Barbieri. In this first case, the man was 440 pounds and complained of being dizzy and he had pain in his lower back and legs. They treated him for 19 months. The first six and a half months, he would fast for 10 days where he would consume about 40 calories from milk in his tea, followed by 10 days of a diet consisting of 300 calories per day. Yep, 300 calories per day. The next eight months, he alternated 10 weeks of an at-home diet, eating 760 calories per day with going to the hospital for 10 day stretches where he would eat nothing. Uh, and then he would go back home and eat 400 calories per day for the next 10 days and then go back to the hospital for 10 days of fasting. He kind of repeated the cycle and eventually he lost about 210 pounds, going from 440 pounds down to 230 pounds. Now, during this whole period of time, he could drink as much as he wanted as long as he didn't have any calories, so mostly tea, coffee, water, and he was given a multivitamin containing vitamin A, vitamin B1, vitamin C, and vitamin D. So I think that Angus Barbieri was either recruited to the hospital or he went there because he somehow knew of this previous patient at this particular hospital. There are about six previous papers of 200 plus day long fast from other physicians in Scotland. So maybe these groups were in cahoots with each other or something. But in any case, Angus Barbieri, well, he was 27 at the time and he worked in a fish and chip shop that his father owned. He was 456 pounds when he was admitted to the hospital and that's when the fast started. He got a multivitamin daily, but otherwise didn't eat at all per the case report write-up. So over the next 382 days of the fast, he lost 276 pounds, going from 456 pounds to a final weight of 180 pounds. During the fast, they did a number of tests on Angus to see how things were going. His blood sugar was very, very low, at about 30 milligrams per deciliter, after about a month until the very end when it was even lower at 20 milligrams per deciliter. For reference, normal blood sugar is between 70 to 99 milligrams per deciliter, so walking around a blood sugar of 30 or 20, that is very low. And in fact, the International Hypoglycemia Study Group considers glucose concentrations 
blood glucose levels less than 54 milligrams per deciliter as biochemical hypoglycemia. They say that this level is distinctly low and does not occur under physiological conditions in individuals without diabetes. Still, most healthcare professionals will call anything under 70 milligrams per deciliter hypoglycemia, the important part here being the patient's symptoms. In other words, this is a laboratory diagnosis as symptoms of hypoglycemia, usually things like dizziness, confusion, tremors, sweating, can occur at varying levels for individuals. And, you know, we're not exactly sure that 70 milligrams per deciliter necessarily means someone's going to be symptomatic with hypoglycemia. There's actually this handy eponym for what is considered to be a true hypoglycemic event in an individual without diabetes. It's called Whipple's Triad, which is named after the U.S. surgeon Alan Whipple. This guy is more famously known for the Whipple procedure, where parts of the pancreas and small intestine, and sometimes even part of the stomach, they're all removed and then everything's rerouted. He didn't actually invent the procedure, but apparently he did it a whole lot. But Whipple's Triad of hypoglycemia requires signs and symptoms of hypoglycemia, that's thing one, Blood glucose of less than 50 milligrams per deciliter. Remember, this guy's walking around at 30 or 20 milligrams per deciliter. So that's the second criteria. And the resolution of symptoms after the administration of glucose. So those three things. You got to have signs and symptoms. You got to have a low blood glucose level. And then it has, those symptoms have to go away after you give the person glucose. Now, you can see why the docs were so concerned with Mr. Barbieri's blood sugar. It was hanging out around 30 milligrams per deciliter. Even though he had no symptoms, felt well, and was apparently walking around normally, the docs did some additional testing of his blood sugar dynamics to see if anything else was going on. For example, they tested his glucose tolerance by doing an IV glucose tolerance test and measuring his blood sugar response afterwards. We normally do this via an oral glucose tolerance test now, but in this test, Mr. Barbieri's blood sugar responded like someone with a normal blood sugar. His blood sugar went up a bit, and then shortly thereafter went back down to his pretest low level. They also had him do a tolbutamide test. Now, tolbutamide is a sulfonylurea drug. This is a class of medications that is sometimes used to treat individuals with type 2 diabetes, as tolbutamide stimulates insulin production by the pancreas. As you might expect, this test normally causes people to produce more insulin, which subsequently lowers blood glucose levels. In this guy with very low blood sugar to begin with, it wasn't clear whether he would have a normal test, which would be further lowering of his blood sugar. Now, I don't know about you, but giving somebody with a blood sugar of 30 milligrams per deciliter a test that's supposed to lower his blood sugar even further makes me pretty uneasy. Nevertheless, Mr. Barbieri tolerated each of these tests just fine and demonstrated the normal response, a relative lowering of his blood sugar within the normal range, save for one final test. During one of the tolbutamide tests, this was right about a year into his fast, he underwent the test where, again, his blood sugar was low, about 45 when the test was done, and it actually went up to 50 about 20 minutes after the tolbutamide was given, which coincided with the patient fainting, which is pretty weird, right? In any case, his other tests showed the normal response without incident, so I guess he was just doing fine. Finally, they did a glucagon stimulation test. This test administers glucagon to the patient, and this is a hormone that has a number of functions, but in this particular case, it's a hormone that increases sugar in the blood, usually from glycogen that's stored in the liver. These days, the glucagon stimulation test is mostly used for growth hormone deficiency testing, but in this study, it was used to check glycogen stores. Normally, in this setting, glucagon would increase blood sugar by releasing stored glycogen into the bloodstream. But this patient didn't respond normally. Each test was actually low until he was about two months past his fast, fully into his refeeding period. This all suggests that he had pretty low levels of stored glycogen during the fast. A number of other tests were also done, assessing different electrolytes, which were overall unremarkable. In any case, as the study went along, Barbieri would take some occasional milk in his tea and coffee, and he was free to come and go as he pleased from the hospital. It's not actually clear how long into the, quote, fast 
he left from the hospital for the first time, or if there were any instances of food consumption while at home. The news reports said that he always resisted while he was at home, but there's no mention of this in the case report. They actually don't mention it all, like when he started going as he pleased to and from the hospital. I assume this was after some period of fasting in the hospital, and then he started basically doing it at home and come into the hospital for tests, but they don't actually mention this in the case report. In any event, at the end of the study period, Mr. Barbieri lost 276 pounds, weighing 180 pounds upon discharge, which was apparently his stated goal. He would mostly maintain this, but the last actual weight we have on record was five years after the fast ended. He was 196 pounds, although news reports said that he never regained obesity. Uh, What's interesting, the first meal he had to break his fast is reported to be a boiled egg, some bread, and some butter, with Mr. Barbieri saying, It went down okay, I feel a bit full, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. The only other weird thing I could find is that this case report was written up seven years after the fast was over, which to me is absolutely insane. Imagine sitting on this case without writing it up, waiting over two years after it was published in the Guinness Book of Records already. To me, that's absolute madness. I would have written this thing up immediately upon this guy uh, leaving my care. Okay, that's it for the weird science part of this podcast, The Longest Fast Ever of 382 Days by Angus Barbieri. Let's now segue into a discussion about intermittent fasting. First off, what is intermittent fasting? Intermittent fasting consists of multiple different timing schedules for periodic, regular, extended food avoidance, including alternate day fasting or other similar full day fasting patterns, and time-restricted feeding, which is another type of intermittent fasting where the day's food is consumed over a 6-8 to hour feeding period allowing for 18 or 14 hours of fasting. Listeners may be most familiar with the version of intermittent fasting that restricts feeding to only between 1 p.m. and 9 p.m. That's a type of time-restricted feeding. To be clear, intermittent fasting, or IF as it's sometimes called, is not the same thing as calorie restriction. Calorie restriction is a reduction in total energy or calorie intake that does not result in malnutrition. And typically, if the calorie restriction achieves an energy deficit that is sustained, weight loss will occur. Now, intermittent fasting, on the other hand, is a specific pattern of eating where extended periods of time involve consumption of no calories, which are followed by designated eating periods. Intermittent fasting can be done with calorie restriction, thereby leading to weight loss, but it doesn't always have to. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. After going to the gym, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? For me, I'd probably do some more reading or get outside of nature, maybe both. Whether we're talking about training, a dietary change, or just life, The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you. Therapy can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it. Of course, therapy isn't a single thing per se, but working with a licensed therapist may be helpful for many folks to learn positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and overall empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suit you, the individual. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BarbellPod today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BarbellPod for 10% off your first month. With respect to weight management, the research on whether the intermittent fasting pattern of eating works better than any other calorie-restricted diet isn't very supportive. For example, in a recent meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials on intermittent fasting performed in adults with overweight or obesity, Intermittent fasting did not cause any additional weight loss to the calorie-restricted comparator group who didn't do intermittent fasting. In another meta-analysis, looking at fasting one or two days per week on weight loss and cardiometabolic outcomes like fasting blood sugar and hemoglobin A1c, which is a test that measures average blood sugar levels, 
well, they found that there weren't any unique benefits to fasting one or two days per week. There's plenty more data here, but my overall sense of things is that intermittent fasting of any variety may be a preferred strategy for some in order to adhere to a calorie-restricted diet during periods of weight loss or to maintain appropriate levels of energy intake during weight maintenance phases. Still, it doesn't look like there's a reliable signal suggesting intermittent fasting of any style is healthier or causes more weight loss than any other eating pattern. Now, there's a bit more to the story regarding health, particularly for those with insulin resistance or diabetes. In those cases, there actually may be a benefit for time-restricted feeding, where people consume more of their food earlier in the day as compared to later in the day, a sort of chrononutrition, if you will. We talked about this a little bit with Sigma Nutrition's Danny Lennon on episode 142 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. I've linked that in the description of this podcast, so you can check that out if you're interested in learning more about that little nuance. Okay, so what about the effects of intermittent fasting on training? First, we'll discuss the effects of intermittent fasting on endurance performance, which is probably best evaluated by looking at it through a different lens. You see, there's not a ton of data just testing the intermittent fasting dietary pattern on endurance performance, and so it's difficult to make heads or tails of things. However, there's lots of data and exercise that compare consuming food, usually in the form of a carbohydrate supplement or combined carbohydrate and protein supplement. They consume that before exercise, or they take a non-calorie containing placebo. Now, both groups in most of these studies were fasting for at least eight hours prior to turning up to the lab for the test, so the supplement groups are no longer fasted, and the placebo group are still fasted. These studies can help us start the conversation about what fasting before a workout can do to performance in folks who are probably not used to fasting. I'll save the studies on training and intermittent fasting as a dietary pattern until the end of this podcast. So in endurance training, the whole thing that we're trying to talk about here are glycogen stores. And fasting overnight tends to result in reduced liver glycogen stores, since these are used to maintain blood sugar during the overnight fasting period. Individuals receiving carbohydrate supplements or carbohydrate protein combined supplements prior to exercise would be predicted to have higher liver glycogen stores and support blood sugar levels during exercise better compared to those receiving a placebo. But in addition to this not really telling us much about how intermittent fasting as a dietary pattern affects training performance or training outcomes, it also doesn't really tell us much about carbohydrate supplements before a workout or a combined carbohydrate protein supplement before a workout. It's really just telling us what the difference is between people who ate something right before a workout and other people who were fasted, who presumably weren't used to fasting. Okay, so what does the science say on this? A 2018 meta-analysis of 37 studies evaluated the effects of being fasted or fed on endurance exercise performance. In this meta-analysis, fasted was defined as a minimum of eight hours without food, and fed was defined as having a meal within 60 minutes of the onset of exercise. Of the studies investigating prolonged aerobic exercise lasting longer than one hour, over half found that pre-workout feeding improved performance, whereas the other 45% in this case found no difference in performance. So about split 50-50. When looking at endurance exercise performed for less than 60 minutes, only three of the seven trials found a performance benefit for feeding before the workout, and the remaining four found no benefit. So again, almost 50-50. The data on anaerobic performance are similarly mixed, with one out of four studies showing a benefit to consuming food prior to a workout compared to fasting, and three showing no benefit. Of note, exercise performance in fed individuals was markedly increased compared to fasted subjects in all of the studies where pre-workout meals were consumed three to four hours prior to initiating exercise, which is a slightly different study. We're not really talking about going into a workout completely fasted, but also not necessarily eating a meal right before you hop on the treadmill or the bicycle. Now, with respect to muscle mass, we might predict that fasting prior to a workout would increase the ratio 
of muscle protein breakdown to muscle protein synthesis, thereby increasing the amount of muscle damage incurred from a training session. And if we take that a step further, we might expect that individuals who train in a fasted state might gain less muscle compared to those who train in a fed state. However, the limited data do not really support these claims. For example, a 2013 study compared the results of 16 resistance-trained Muslim men during the month of Ramadan who either trained under fasted or fed conditions. The fed group trained at night after breaking their fast, whereas the fasted group trained in the late afternoon prior to breaking their fast. Both groups used the same four-day-per-week resistance training program and consumed nearly identical amounts of protein, about 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day. They also consumed the same amount of carbohydrates, fat, and total calories. At the end of the month, there were no statistically significant differences in muscle mass, body fat, or markers of muscle damage between groups. In fact, there were no changes in muscle mass or weight in all in any of the groups, suggesting it didn't really matter when they trained. There was no clear performance benefit for either approach. Of course, the study was only a month long, so you really wouldn't expect a huge difference in weight or muscle mass anyway. Muscle mass that's detectable to a significant degree just takes longer to build than a month. Another meta-analysis looking at how intermittent fasting affects lean body mass in those doing resistance training found that in seven of eight studies, it supported existing lean body mass levels, but they didn't really gain any, whereas only one study showed a significant increase in lean body mass with intermittent fasting. Another study had 20 subjects doing resistance training with half doing intermittent fasting until the afternoon and the other half eating normally. After a year, so after 12 months, the intermittent fasting group lost about three kilograms whereas the normal diet group gained just under two and a half kilograms. Interestingly, the three kilogram loss in the intermittent fasting group was about half fat and half muscle, whereas the normal diet, the weight that they gained was almost completely muscle mass or at least fat-free mass. The strength changes in both groups from their bench press and leg press 1RM were similar, so no real differences between the intermittent fasting group and the quote normal diet group. But unfortunately, there's just not a lot of data comparing intermittent fasting as an eating strategy to a traditional dietary pattern in calorie match settings. Based on the data available, I don't think that intermittent fasting is a performance-enhancing diet in and of itself, as no data shows that fasting improves exercise performance in virtually any study. That leads me to recommend that most individuals, they should probably eat a pre-workout meal when performance is prioritized. Still, intermittent fasting could be someone's preferred strategy, and I also don't think it's harmful to gains either. Individuals seem to respond differently to different pre- and intra-workout dietary strategies and overall dietary patterns, and so the plan should be tailored to the individual's preferences and needs. Okay, that's it for this episode of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. If you like this episode, share it with a friend and leave us a five-star review. Have a great week and thanks for listening. Do you have that one piece of clothing you keep going back to no matter how full your closet is? Having a versatile, high-quality favorite feels great, but having a whole closet of them feels even better. American Giant puts the quality, durability, and comfort they're famous for into everything you need for your spring days. From premium t-shirts and jeans to lightweight French terry joggers and their legendary best hoodie ever. Whether you're dressing for work, the gym, or happy hour, you're sure to find your next closet go-to from American Giant. And it's all made in America and designed to last a lifetime. Get 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's American-Giant.com, code S-T-A-P-L-E, 2 0.